in determining your child's treatment are completely at their own discretion. Good morning and welcome to Autism Live. I'm Shannon Penrod and I know it doesn't look like me. Uh, <laughs> I call this wig the Joan Jett. Uh, it's a little red on top and, and uh, it's darker on the bottom. I'm going to lose it in about a second because it's driving me crazy and I can't stand these glasses because of the reflection. So I'm just going to, I'm going to revert back to me slowly as we get here. <laughs> anyway, uh, I, you know, I'm all about uh, being amusing. And uh, so we might do a different wig every day until we uh, run out of wigs. And I have way too many wigs. I don't know. We're, we'll do different wigs until we run out of amusement. But anyway, I'm Shannon Penrod and very excited to be here with you this morning live. We are live from our Woodland Hills studio this morning. It is, what is the date? It's April, Wednesday, April 12th. How did it get to be this late in the month of April? And it is April, which is the A month, right? April, Autism Awareness Acceptance Action. And it, you probably could think of 12 more A words. I think it's time to lose the wig. Shall we lose the wig? Yes. If you watch the show, you know that this happened the other day at the end of our podcast-a-thon. I hope you guys enjoyed the pod- podcast-a-thon. We're going to be giving you uh, the podcast versions because you guys have been asking for it for all the things that you missed. And we're going to be re-airing some of those throughout the month of April. We're really excited. I didn't get to see all of the things, and I want to see all of the things because you guys wrote to me and said, oh, I love this hour, I love that hour, and I was like, oh, I wanted to watch more of that hour, but I either had to close my eyes or run around like a crazy person, uh, changing sets and doing all kinds of things. But we, we had a good time because it's about information and inspiration, and it's important that we have a good time while we do that, right? So I'm, I'm glad if you're joining us today because we've got two amazing guests. We're, we're not done with the information and inspiration, right? We're going to um, be bringing you Leah McCabe in just a few minutes. She's from Autism Wish. We're going to talk with her about that and many other things and what it means to accept, in her opinion, autism. And then we've got a great guest for the second half, Ed Thompson, from Optimize is going to talk with us about neuroclusion in the workplace, a thing that we all need to be striving for and and to get to in a really positive way. And I think he's got a great message. His book is A Hidden Force. Can you guess what The Hidden Force is? So all of that's going to be coming up in just a little while. I'm going to remind you that we are live right now. So we are, the chat is open. We'd like to take questions, comments. Did you like the wig or do you prefer the baldness? What, what, is your, what is your choice of preference? Is there a type of wig you would like to see me in? <laughs> would you like for me to go away? Uh, <laughs> what's happening in your neck of the woods? So Traven's going to show you some of the different ways that you can connect with us here, that you can write in. It is our favorite part when you guys write in and tell us that you're here and tell us the kinds of things that you want to talk about. We love that. Uh, we, Traven's showing you some of the different ways that you can connect with us here on the Autism Network and Autism Live and all the, all the different ways that there are. Don't forget that we are a podcast as well as a live show that, that streams on YouTube and our whole library is on YouTube. For those of you who are new to us, you may know that we do this in, we film this with picture and sound. And now we podcast audio only for most of our shows because we know that that's how you prefer to download our content. But you can always find the whole show with the video and sound on YouTube. And that is uh, a free thing on YouTube. All of our stuff is free because that's really important to me. I'll be honest with you. I don't know how much longer we can do that. So I ask always that you guys like, share, comment, because that helps to keep us alive. It's a long story of how that all works out, but it does. It helps to keep us alive and on the air and makes people understand that it's relevant, that you want this kind of content. You know, I'm always saying if we could just get to Miss Oprah and say, Miss Oprah, there are people who need this content, right? Or, or other people like the Learning Channel, people like that. I hope they're listening. Netflix, where are you? We, uh, we feel that people need this information, which is why we did 44 straight hours. In any case, 
On Wednesdays, whenever possible, we like to share with you the jargon of the day. This is when we take on one word, one phrase, one acronym. We try to first give you the actual definition, then I promptly try to make as much fun of it as I can squeeze out of the day, uh, or squeeze out of the jargon. And then we give you a working definition, which is less precise, but hopefully is a little bit easier to understand. And then I try to give you a working example so that you can see how this term might apply in your life or in the life of someone you love and why knowing this term might help you to get further faster. It's really all about that for me. If I can help you to save five minutes or five dollars, then I feel that I've done something important. Hey, Melody from Rock of Gibraltar. It's 7 p.m. over there. Uh, she says, you look fabulous just the way you are. You don't you like the wig? <laughs> The hair is starting to come in. It's in that phase where it feels really great. Like if you guys were all here, I'd have you rub my head for luck. Uh, the other day it felt like sandpaper and now it feels like a, a fuzzy animal. Um, it's it's kind of cool. But uh, I'll be happy when it comes in a little bit more. You know what I'm saying? I got a little bit of a sunburn on the thing the other day, on the melon. Uh, anyway, I digress. Jargon. So our jargon of the day, Traven's got it up there, our fabulous Traven, is prosody. And this is one of those terms that you might have heard prosody in uh, a different context and it meant something different to you. But when we're talking about this in within the autism community, it has a very specific meaning. And by the way, it's not just an autism term. The, many people struggle with prosody. We'll talk about that in just a second. Let's take a look at what our actual definition of prosody is, and then we'll work backwards. So prosody is the use of intention and vocal stress to convey information about the structure and meaning, meaning of an utterance. All right, it's not the worst definition in the world, but it's a little, I don't know, it kind of runs around the subject. The use of intonation and vocal stress to convey information about the structure and meaning of an utterance. It sounds like somebody's trying to impress somebody. All right, let's move on to our working definition and try to see if we can sort this puppy out. So working definition is the use of pitch, loudness, tempo, and rhythm in speech so that the listener can understand what is being said. My perfect example of prosody is, uh, you know the guy, Ben Stein, that he was the teacher in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and then he did a bunch of Visine commercials, and he even had a game show for a while. And he is known for his lack of prosody, that when he talks, he talks very monotone, Bueller, 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 and there's nothing else there. He just sounds like he's bored. And it's all, you know, I was very scared. Uh, now, this can be used to comic effect, right? But it's not so funny when it's your kiddo on the spectrum and they are talking like this. I don't feel good, right? And people go, I don't really know. Are you saying you don't feel good or, or are you making fun of? You know, like they don't know what the meaning is because everything is flat. If you think about prosody, I always think about if, if I'm reading a story to kids and, um, you know, I'm trying to put everything I possibly can into my voice. So I go, it was a dark and stormy night, right? I'm using all kinds of prosody to try to convey that there's suspense and there's fear and there's going to be all kinds of things happening. And that's, you know, a fun way that we use prosody, but a lot of times people will say that individuals on the spectrum sound like robots. I really freaking hate that. Like it, it sets off something to me. It's a third rail with me because I, I don't know about you guys, but when my son was diagnosed with autism, I asked the doctor about getting him services and I wanted him to talk again. He had been talking and he lost language and I was hoping that he would talk again. And I heard that some kids on the spectrum could regain language. And when I said this to the pediatrician, uh, I said, what about that ABA thing? I, I hear that that helps with talking. And the doctor said, oh, no, 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 don't do that. They'll turn him into a robot. They'll teach him how to very robotically say things. Now, for the ABA that we chose, that was so not the case. And my son talks very animatedly, and I love that. 
Um, but I do know some individuals on the spectrum who are frustrated because they have been told that they sound robotic and, and they're not, they don't sound robotic. It's that they haven't been taught enough about prosody and that prosody is that you use all the parts of your voice to convey meaning so that, um, and you can play games with this. If you're trying to teach someone this, that I'll tell you, acting classes are the best for this, right? Because um, they make it as fun as possible. But you can do this with your young kids. You can do this with your teenagers. You can do this with adults on the spectrum. That you can say, okay, let's play a little game. And you can have little flashcards that have a sentence that says, I'm tired. And then we try to see how many different ways we can say, I'm tired, and what meaning they convey. And it's both the the receptive and the expressive, right? So that I can say to somebody, I'm tired. And what does that convey versus, I'm tired, right? And and which which one makes you think that that I'm tired and which one makes you think that I'm angry, right? Now, before you would teach all that, you would make sure that they had an understanding of what emotions are, right? So it becomes one of those things that there are prerequisites, but I think a lot of times this gets left off the plate, that people just go, oh, we're just going to teach language and we're not going to teach prosody, and that's a mistake. Prosody is a very fun thing, and it conveys meaning. I, When I was teaching college, Um, there was an actress, a student that I just adored, and she's had a pretty nice career. And I know she won't mind me telling this story, that um, there was an improv club that was in effect when I came to teach at this one college. And I was asked if I would go and be the academic advisor because I had done comic improv professionally. And I said, sure, I'll I'll go check it out, but I don't want to insinuate myself upon them if they don't want me, you know, because they've been functioning without an academic advisor. Maybe they don't want one, you know? And so I went and I watched them rehearse. And, you know, I saw that they were doing really good work, but I saw that there were some things that I could help. And, And I said, are you guys willing to take, you know, some direction? And they said, yes. And I said, well, let's just play a little bit. Let's try this. Let's try that. And I was trying to be mindful of their space. And so I get to the end of this and, and I said, you know, so what do you guys think? You know, I've been asked to <laughs> see if you want an academic advisor. I'd be happy to be your academic, but I don't want to, I, I don't want to force myself upon you. And the one girl, she goes, this was so helpful. I can't even, it was so helpful And I said to her, I didn't know her at the time, and I said, I can't tell if you're being serious or if you're being sarcastic. I can't tell from the tone in your voice. And she was like, what? I'm totally, this is life-changing. And I said, somebody translate for me because I'm having a hard time knowing if you actually mean that. They were like, no, that's how she talks. She's really... And, and later she said, she said, I was so overwhelmed because I learned so much that I, I kind of had, had fizzed out. But she's a person who, you know, prosody is sort of her funny. So in any case, we don't want for our kids to not be able to convey meaning. If we worked hard to get to language and we got language, let's make sure that the language is conveying the meaning, and that can be prosody. Uh, Like when you're saying to somebody, hurry up, if you say, hurry, (laughs) they don't really think that you're saying, hurry, right? Uh, We can teach this. Uh, Autism Journey with Elijah, good morning, how are you? Brian, uh, good morning, Shannon, a new distinguished character look for you. Did you see the wig? Is that what you're referring to? I always listen intensely. There's always great info to think about and investigate. My latest look into SPS, slow processing speed, as probable key to address um, to help Owen. You know, um, and there's a lot to be said about processing speed, but sometimes I, I want to make sure that you're looking at all aspects of that, the, the processing speed, because sometimes we find that there's a sense that's faster and a sense that's slower. And sometimes processing speed is about being able to decode diphthongs and triphthongs. That I learned this as a teacher, 
that you know how I mean if you guys have ever done this where you're talking to a group of people and I would see this with students you stand in front of the room and you say let's you know take out your math book and turn to page 84 is something that a teacher would say right and a bunch of kids would you know reach down get their math book and turn to page 84 but there would be a kid over there who's busy doing something else right and a kid there who didn't pick up on it but now now notices everybody else took took out their math book and so they go oh i think i'm supposed to take out the math book what page are we on right and a lot of people accuse those kids of not paying attention and not having good focus but sometimes those are kids who can't distinguish the sounds and that if you hold up a visual prompt as well they're there the focus is there um they absolutely get it so be careful brian as you because there's all kinds of way to work on processing speed but you need to know what the processing delay is because for some of our kids they're um just being able do you guys all understand what a diphthong and a triphthong is when you put two vowel sounds together like the word hour that is uh there's an ow and a uh so hour and if you think about it when we spell our we spell it all different kinds of ways right it could be h-o-u-r or it could be um o-u-r right so um it's important that they can hear diphthongs and then a, a triphthong is when there's three vowel sounds in a row and some of our kids have reported that they didn't weren't able to distinguish those sounds until they were teenagers but we there are exercises that you can do to work on decoding diphthongs and triphthongs you could, probably on pinterest they have things like that maya you <laughs> like the vault book we got to get you booked and back on maya and esoteric gold given thumbs up cool uh so glad you're here helen hello helen i hope i for those of you who wrote to me because you won a um discovery toys gift card during the the uh, podcast-a-thon i couldn't think what the word was all of a sudden um if you won one of the 25 dollars gift cards you were supposed to email me and for those of you who did email I, I i know helen that you um had emailed and said that you had won one uh you should have gotten your code so if you didn't get your code it means either i didn't get your email um or check your spam because it could be in your spam. Does that make sense? Okay. So prosody, a really cool thing. You can teach it in lots of different ways. Um, and it's a really useful, super useful skill for everybody. Lisa sets it off. Hello, beautiful. Hello, gorgeous to you. I'm so thrilled that you guys are all here with us because I've got two amazing guests. And I do want to say right before we get to the guests that I want to remind everybody that this show is really meant for that uh, larger whole autism community. And when I say that, what I mean is it is for individuals who are on the spectrum themselves. They are first and foremost our community. They are the beating heart of our community. But we also include in our community not only those people, but everyone who loves those individuals. Because we believe that together, if we are if we listen and if we work hard, we can be really good allies to those that we love. So that's that's who this show is for. And um, and that's really important for us. So let's talk about our first guest, who is Leah McCabe. And I want to tell you a little bit about her and Autism Wish. She is the founder of Autism Wish, a charitable initiative providing autistic children with sensory and therapeutic items and parent resources. She is also the host of Embracing the, the Embracing Autism podcast and certified in special needs parent training and mentorship. She's an outspoken autistic advocate and the parent of two wonderful autistic girls. Her mission is to create a more uh, excuse me compassionate and ex- I can't talk today a more compact these are important words compassionate and inclusive community and so we want to welcome Leah to the show Leah are you there yeah I'm here hello wonderful do we have her um, also uh, visual Traven I can hear her but I don't see her yet um, 
But Leah, so thrilled that you're here, and uh, thank you for waiting so patiently to be here with us. Can you talk to us, first of all, about what autism, there you are, it's so good to see you. Can you talk to us first a little bit about Autism Wish, what it is, and how it started? Yeah, sure. So Autism Wish is this mom and pop charity initiative that my husband and I started um, during the pandemic, actually. So our kids were diagnosed really young with autism spectrum disorder during right before the pandemic, basically. And so they got locked out of all therapies. They suddenly lost access to all their resources, and they started to have lots of regressions with speech, behavior, feeding, all sorts of things. Um, and so we found that a lot of parents were kind of left to hung dry during the pandemic. And we realized that there are a lot of unique, like, things that you can purchase on Amazon that aren't covered by insurance, but are essentially the same things that speech therapists and occupational therapists will use in therapy sessions. So we created Autism Wish as a way to connect parents with heroes or sponsors who could grant these sensory gifts for them so that they could continue providing um, this kind of like therapy um, placeholder at home while everything was locked down. And then we've since expanded it to provide um, earmuffs for kids on the 4th of July and send out Valentine's cards as well. So that's pretty much how that whole thing started. I love that. And you are someone who, because um, there's lots of different schools of thought about this, but you say that you think it's important to disclose the autism diagnosis as early as possible with um, children I'm on the sorry, spectrum. I'm sorry, I lost your audio. Oh, Traven, she can't hear me. Uh, Traven's going to work on that. Uh, can you hear me now? Yes, now I okay. can hear you. Okay, so you're somebody who believes very strongly in in disclosing a diagnosis as early as possible. Talk to us a little bit about that and why you feel that so passionately. Because people have lots of questions about this and people have lots of feelings about this, but sometimes parents are like, I really don't know. So give them your point of view. Yeah, absolutely. So for me personally, as I was growing up, I had a bunch of disabilities or learning disabilities that I did not personally know I had. Um, I didn't end up getting my diagnoses of ADHD and executive dysfunction until just before college. And so my entire experience growing up, um, I basically just thought that something was wrong with me. I felt broken. I couldn't connect to my peers. I couldn't understand why things were seemingly so much easier for other people to do. And when you don't have that diagnosis or you don't know that you have something that is, you know, very common, um, you essentially just internalize everything. And then when you internalize things, it leads to poor self-esteem, depression, anxiety, and all sorts of bad things, essentially. So for me, getting my diagnoses when it came to first that ADHD and executive dysfunction really kind of gave me that aha moment and opened the door to allow me to kind of fully accept myself for who I was and really kind of changed my entire perspective. And from that point on, I was able to go to college and do fine and all that. But had I not known my diagnosis, that would have continued on. And that's actually why I then eventually, after my kids were diagnosed with autism, I actually pursued an evaluation for myself with um, autism because I was still experiencing the same sort of thing with like the social isolation, social rejection, that sort of thing. And again, it impacts your self-esteem. You always think about why can't I make connections? Why can't I have a bestie like everyone else seems to? Those sorts of things that really impact a kid's ability to kind of live life fully and, you know, okay with who they are as a person. So for me, Getting those diagnoses, not just open the door to therapies that your kids might be needing, um, because they will impact how much insurance is willing to cover, but they will also impact your own child's outlook on their on themselves growing up, their perspective of who they are and their self-esteem. So it really is truly, really important. Well, I appreciate this. I, you know, I leave room for everybody has to make their own decision, but like you, I felt the same way when my son was diagnosed but for different reasons. I'm a massive control freak and I didn't want someone else to tell him what his diagnosis was and put their spin on it. I, it was very important to me to, that it come from my husband and I and that it come from a positive place. 
that had come from a place where where he would be accepting of himself. And and I was so afraid that it was going to be somebody out on the schoolyard. And and I wasn't wrong either because, you know, we disclosed him at a very, you know, he was two and a half. I don't think he even understood at that point. But we continued to talk about and use the A word, autism, and um, but always use it in a positive light, that it was, you know, a part of him and that we loved all of him, including that. Um, but then kids on the playground would say it to him and they were not putting it in a positive light. But we felt like we were packing his backpack to be prepared for that. And, you know, to a large extent, it worked for a long period of time. But bullying is bullying. And, you know, sometimes we had to deal with that. But this brings me to my next question for you, because we talk about being accepting of autism. But I think it means something different to everyone. Talk about what it means to you and why you are a big champion for this A accepting word. Yeah, sure. Um, First, I'd like to just address really quick what you said. Um, The bullying is going to come regardless of whether or not your child knows they're autistic because they're still going to be autistic and kids will still realize they're different. So it's better to empower them with that diagnosis than them being left in the dark because I was heavily bullied and it happens regardless. I didn't have my diagnosis. But um, as far as acceptance, I think the acceptance piece is important because I do still think awareness is important. There are still other areas and countries that are not as aware of autism. I know that for me, like my family members, some people knew what autism was. Some people had never really truly heard of autism. So there's still like a mission of awareness. That's still an important piece. But the United States is kind of like a leader when it comes to autism awareness right now. And so we are much better at that piece already. And so for us here, at least, we are able to kind of start moving towards that acceptance phase, which is really truly accepting people for who they are, despite their neurological differences. So instead of just saying like, you know, oh, this kid is autistic, we will basically treat him as we would anyone else. But then you kind of talk to them in a Um, overly childish way, or perhaps you might be speaking to them as if you're not quite sure if they understand you. Sometimes people think that that means acceptance, but really you're still kind of socially alienating or pointing that child out by talking to them in a way that you wouldn't talk to other peers their age. So to me, acceptance is more like trying to treat autistic individuals the way that you would essentially treat anyone else and really incorporating them into your lives so that you're not secluding them, you're including them. There's actual inclusion on like your local sports teams or um, after school activities or whatever it may be. It's not kind of like an us and them, but it's like an us together in cohesion. In fact, you you talk about um, there's there's a lack of inclusion in the community that you'd like to see change. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I, I've noticed that this is particularly prevalent in more rural and suburban areas, which is where I tend to be. And what I'm noticing that's been really difficult for us is we're not able to get our kids involved in sports or after school activities, ballet, any sorts of things, because there tends to be two lines of thinking. Either it's you can only go to a special needs version of something which oftentimes in a rural area doesn't exist or they claim to be inclusive because they accept everyone into this like sports uh, team, for example. But when they're on the team, there isn't anybody there who's experienced with special needs. There's nobody there who understands what autism is and could actually realistically accommodate my child's needs. So while they're well-intended in saying that this is inclusive, for example, Parks and Rec, they, they claim to be totally inclusive. It's not truly inclusive if you're not making way for a child to actually actually participate. It's like claiming that the baseball field is inclusive because you've got a ramp going to it for a kid who uses a wheelchair, but you're not actually changing the game in any way so that a kid in a wheelchair can actually access the game in general holistically. Yeah. In fact, we've got uh, people writing in. Katrina, I just want to make sure that you knew that we do. We love comments here. Katrina says, same things with daycare. Most are not trained to deal with special needs. Um, There is a lot of people saying that they are inclusive and I guess they're wanting to be inclusive, but 
I don't, I don't know. Is it that we need more training for these people so that they actually know? It, it doesn't seem like it would be that hard to me, but maybe it's, maybe it's so common sense and people don't have common sense anymore. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, so I actually did a little bit of digging. Um, I went in and I talked to them and interviewed um, our Parks and Rec people. And honestly, this is the part where the parents really are kind of failing our kids a little bit here because what has happened, at least in my local area, is that um, they have tried to put out special needs programs where they do kind of try to specify to meet these needs, but the parents don't show up. And a lot of times they will voice that they're interested in these things, but they don't show up. And I've experienced that myself um, trying to launch initiatives in my local community where I'll put these events together that the community is often calling for. But as soon as they're here, the parents don't show up. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, one of them is obviously autism with childcare can be difficult if it's a parent event, or you never know, your kid could be having a meltdown or transition issues. There's all sorts of other barriers just to get the parents from point A to point B with their kids. So even if these resources are available, just getting the parents there is yet another difficulty. Yeah, it kind of makes, it reminds me, because I know during the early years when my son was first diagnosed and we were working really hard to be able to help him and support him, I didn't have the bandwidth to do a whole lot else. But I say to parents who have older kids like I do, it really is our time to go in and help and support as much as we can because I think sometimes the parents of younger kids, their plates are full. Um, so, you know, reminding us all that when, when you need to like be taking care of things at home, do that. But if those of us who have the bandwidth, maybe that's a thing that we can be helping with. I know it was a couple of years ago that, um, Ev Kung and I got invited to come to the local museum and, and do a walkthrough and look at sensory issues and, and to give recommendations, her as a clinician, me as a parent, and then we said to them, but you really need to have a person on the spectrum do this as well, which they then did. And together with all those perspectives, they made changes and they and they trained their staff and we felt like we'd done something, you know? Um, I love that Katrina says, I saw a news article this morning about an airline, Southwest maybe, that they're starting this new thing uh, where lanyards that have little umbrellas um, that I guess trigger to people that there's an invisible disability. But her question is, are they actually training the workers on what to do when recognized? And I think that's key, Katrina. I do think that some of the airlines are working on that. I know we just had Holly Robinson Pete here the other day for the opening of our podcastathon, and she's been working very closely with an airline where they have visits where um, a whole bunch of folks with different special needs and different abilities go to the airport, and the workers are there, and it's a great educational experience for both sides. They actually, you know, go through security, get on the plane, rev the engines, and do everything, and it is for both sides, for the workers to see, you know, okay, this is who this population is, and they're not all the same, and their and their needs are not all the same, um, and for the individuals to see, oh, this is what it would be like when we're not in the panic of having to actually get on the plane to go someplace. So we love that. Um, okay, uh, I also wanted to ask you about one of the things that you talk a lot and the ways that you help parent is talking about what black and white thinking is. And, and how to uh, know how to deal with someone who is doing black and white thinking, how to communicate effectively with them. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So this has personally been a big struggle, not, not just for me, but for my kids. All of us are really black and white thinkers. And briefly, that essentially means that we're kind of like in an all or nothing and very literal thinking. Um, and so one of the ways that that has kind of come up in my life and my kids' lives is particularly like in academics and school, whenever there's directions, for instance, on an assignment, um, we tend to follow those directions very literally and and very um, specifically to what's there on the paper. And so oftentimes 
we realized later after the fact, uh, apparently there was some sort of underlying implied message there that we completely miss. I get this a lot in my um, employee reviews where um, I think I'm providing exactly what is being requested of me, but because it's not written very literally, there's all this inference that somebody who's autistic will often um, basically completely miss. It'll just go over our heads. So as a parent or a teacher or caretaker, it's important that when you are requesting things of your child or you're just trying to communicate with them to use as plain language as possible and try not to use like metaphors or um, satire or sarcasm or things like that without at least clarifying immediately that that's what that was because for us, it'll just go over our head. Um, it also results in a lot of miscommunications that can lead to arguments. Um, sometimes because of the black and white thinking, um, you can basically say something that to you, you mean very specifically and literally what you're saying, but to somebody else, they might interpret it as something else because of the nuances behind what that means in neurotypical society. And I know like for me, I have gotten in a lot of trouble with that very frequently with people because I think I know what I'm like, I feel like I'm saying one thing and apparently other people hear something completely different and that can lead to some like burnt relationships. So that's another thing is if you feel like your child or somebody who you know is autistic is coming off as rude or mean, or you think that they said something really, really hurtful to you and it hurts your feelings. My recommendation is usually not to just assume that because it's possible they had no idea that it came off that way. So always giving that bit of like grace and kind of being willing to probe and be like, this is what you said. This is how it came off. Is that what your intention was? Exactly. I always believe that intent is what matters at the end of the day. Absolutely. Leah, you're doing amazing work. Tell them where they can find Autism Wish and tell them how they can be listening to Embracing the, the Embracing Autism podcast. Yeah, sure. So Autism Wish, you can find it on our website at autismwish.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Autism Wish. And we're also on youtube.com slash at Autism Wish. That's where you'll see our video podcast. For our audio podcast, you can find that anywhere you listen to podcasts. Again, that's the Embracing Autism podcast. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. We applaud the work that you're doing, and, and we can't wait to have you back another time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Wonderful. I, I love to see people who are empowered and helping other people. It's a wonderful thing. Uh, our next guest that we have with us on the show is Ed Thompson. Uh, he is, let, wait, I'm going to pull up his actual bio. Uh, he's the founder and CEP. I don't even know what a CEP is, so he's going to have to explain that to me, of Optimize. It's the leading global expert in neuroinclusion in the workplace. This is a new word for me, neuroinclusion. I like it. He is also the author of a new book, A Hidden Force, Unlocking the Potential of Neurodiversity at Work. We need this in our lives. We're going to talk about the book and what he's got going on. Let's welcome him to the program. Ed, are you there? I'm here. Thank you for having me. Oh, and Ed has a wonderful accent. Uh, <laughs> I, I, this was not disclosed to me before. Ed, where, where are you from, Ed? Well, I'm from London, uh, now based in Denver with my American wife and rather bizarrely, my American eight-month-old son as well. Is it bizarre to have an eight-month-old, or is it bizarre to have an eight-month-old who is being raised in America? No, it's it's bizarre to go to London and go to Heathrow, and we go up as a family to border control, and he has an American passport going into you know the UK, which is where I'm from. But you know, and he doesn't have he, he he'll get a British passport, but he doesn't have one yet. So that was just kind of a funny. Yeah, a funny moment, and uh, uh, of well, course, pretty... you know, he can't. Uh, he doesn't talk yet, so it's going to be a, once I start getting the, you know, dad, all this kind of stuff. That's going to be a <laughs> shock as well. Uh, well, congratulations on having an eight-month-old. That, in and of itself, can be a very life-changing, weird experience. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, but much to talk about here. Do you have a copy of the book that you can hold up for us? I want people to see the cover. Uh, we have a picture of it yeah. before, but. 
I always like it when the author, there, oh, there it is, it's reversed, but I hit, so you guys know what it is that you're looking for. Not, not um, quite, not, it's just, I'm not sure how to magically unreverse it no, unless I sort of turn it upside down. Uh, but and we anyway, have a picture of it somewhere too. Uh, but I like it when an author can hold up a picture of the book. Congratulations on this. So let's talk a little bit about the book, what people will find in it, and why this was a thing that you felt you needed to write. Yeah, and I, I have to give you a bit of my story, really, because I think the, the book very much came from that uh, journey. Um, so... I'd actually had a traumatic brain injury um, about 15 years ago or so. Uh, that meant I was out of work for a while. I eventually went back to work full time, found myself working for a CEO in the, in the tech industry. And rather to my surprise, got very involved in the world of people in business. How do we hire people? How do we hire great people? How do we make sure we don't just hire people who think and look the same? So I got involved in diversity and strategic diverse recruitment, um, specifically building apprenticeship programs in London for disadvantaged folks, you know, young people in London to, to get into to tech jobs. And it was through that that I started talking to some autistic family members about potential opportunities to help build that education to employment bridge within the neurodiversity space. That wasn't a term that I'd heard at that point, but it was something that resonated with me because I'd had the accident and I had some, some traits as a result of the accident, um, sensory sensitivity and, and needing to manage my own workspace and some short-term memory issues and so on that, that made me sort of uh, understand, I think, that that field a little bit more than I might have otherwise. So that was really the, the genesis for my company, Optimize. Uh, and our purpose is to educate employers about neurodiversity to make sure that they are in a position to embrace and leverage different types of thinkers. And that journey was the basis for the book, because I think it was the realizations and the experiences I had along that journey that made, was something that I wanted to share with the world, whether it was the uh, the talent that's being marginalized and, and really the missed opportunity here for businesses to get stronger by embracing people who think differently and obviously the consequent social impact of, of not doing that. Uh, the fact that we've seen pretty clearly that organizations don't hire the best people because their hiring processes marginalize and exclude people who might have neurodivergent traits. Uh, the excitement and energy we've seen when we've trained organizations and we've seen people really quite emotional about receiving what we call neuroinclusion training, saying, you know, I'm in tears because this just means so much for me and I didn't think the day would come. But also managers saying, I was a cynic, I didn't know what this had to do with me. And this is the most profound thing I've heard in leadership for 20 years because I'm suddenly thinking about the fact that my team all has a different brain. So there was just so much I wanted to, to share with the world, you know, beyond our community. And three years ago, decided to, to start the journey of writing a book and it came out this week. Well, and congratulations on that. And it's a book that we all need. You say that neuroinclusion is on the rise. And I want to talk with that because I, I think you're right. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about, because it seems like every company on, in the world right now ha has a diversity, equity, and inclusion division. Um, and we've heard from some of the top CEOs in the last two years that this is the top issue facing CEOs. So uh, great. But the problem that I find, and I want you to talk about this, is even though we are seeing this uptick and we're seeing, you know, 60 Minutes, Anderson Cooper did a whole piece on this and how companies are starting to do this. But when I find that I'm talking to somebody about their diversity, equity, and inclusion division, they're talking about race and ethnicity, and they have forgotten the special needs community, and it's almost like it's an asterisk at the end of it and that they haven't been keyed into, and I'm frustrated by it. So tell me what you see, because you're working in this field. 
Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think that has a long, that has deep roots because, I mean, diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know, if we want to call it that, DEI, that really started in the 1960s. And there were businesses in the 1970s being fined for, you know, not making steps to be to be inclusive. But the, in our case, the term neurodiversity didn't emerge till the late 90s. So in a sense, you know, businesses and society are just a bit uh, behind here. What's happened, what we've seen is that you had some organisations in the mid 2010s decide to do what they thought of as disability hiring programmes. So the idea is, you know, programmes to hire people we wouldn't otherwise hire and decided to focus those specifically on uh, really autistic tech talent. That was that was the initial uh, focus. And of course, that got a lot of press coverage because this was really the first time that some of these big famous employers were saying, you know, we actively specifically want neurodivergent um, skills. But what happened, not surprisingly, in a way, right, what happened was that in these organisations, as they started talking about neurodiversity, all sorts of people started disclosing and saying, hey, what about me? I'm, I'm already here and I'm neurodivergent and, you know, I don't have the support that, that I need. And so what's been so wonderful the last few years, not in every company, but in but in some and in some big ones, you've seen really the rise. And it's very recent, just the last two or three years of groups of advocates and allies within organizations coming together and actually being a voice for the neurodivergent community within an organization and doing it constructively and saying, look, you know, we're here. We want to make the organization more neuroinclusive. Uh, and we can help. And the best organisations have been embracing that support. And I think what we've seen on a positive note is where organisations have the, 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 you know, the business leaders understanding that diversity and inclusion is, is impactful, where they empower neurodivergent people within the organisation and where they use uh, an organisation like our company, where this is our day job and we work every day to build solutions to help organizations become more neuroinclusive that good things happen now of course we can also look at the flip side of that which is saying that in a majority of the economy at the moment you know those things aren't yet happening and our job really and i hope through the book and and our work at the company is is to start broadening that so that more and more uh, people and organizations can can you know enjoy the benefits of greater neuroinclusivity A story that I can share, which was very eye-opening to me, about five years ago, I was fortunate enough to be going on a trip to John, or was it Johnson or Kennedy? Uh, The one that's in this, the aerospace uh, site, NASA site that's in Houston. And I was going there with Dr. Temple Grandin uh, for a whole day of stuff, interacting with astronauts and with NASA, Temple taking the tour, and I was going to be covering it. Um, and filming it. Okay, so during the day, one of the things that they had asked her in advance was, would you be willing to do a little talk for some of the employees here at NASA? And she said yes. And they said, we we have these two different halls that we use for this kind of thing. We think the smaller one would be appropriate for, for you, and it seats like 100 people. And she said, no, 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 what's the bigger one? And they said, oh, that one seats about 1,500. It's so big, it would be hard to fill it. It would be almost everybody who works here. We don't think that that's a good idea. She said, we're going to need that, and we're going to, like, do you have a way that you can cover it in other rooms if we have overflow? And they kind of didn't think that that was going to be necessary. But she filled the place. It was standing room only. There were people trying to get in from outside. And while she was speaking, she said, I'm just curious how many of you feel that, you know, either you're on the spectrum or in some way related yourself. So many people raised their hands. And then it was how many of you have a family member or a loved one? Everyone raised their hands. And I watched the NASA people go, I don't think we noticed how many people that would identified in this realm before and I've seen them make some changes as a result of it. There's an in-house support group. Uh, you know, I don't know if I'm allowed to be saying all that, but 
I thought it was really interesting because NASA didn't know how big of a part of their population this was. And I watched it, I watched them discover it. It was sort of a, yeah. a very uh, woo moment. Um, so, you know, as more people come forward, we've learned how many people do consider themselves neurodiverse. Um, and, and I think that that has been good, but we've got a ways to go. Talk to us about what you're doing with Optimize, and if there's somebody who works at a company or they themselves are a CEO of a company, what you do for them that help and why they need you. They may not even know that they need you. Talk, talk to us. Yeah. Well, we always start with the fact that humans as a whole are neurodiverse as a, as a species. We don't all have the same brain. I love the quote. I think it's Thomas Armstrong who says, um, you know, you can't sort of go to a museum and see, you know, the normal brain in a jar because it doesn't exist. And, and that's the reality. And of course, you know, neurodivergent people uh, have their own brains, you know, within that wider reality. Uh, what that means in for an organization then is it means that any interaction at work, whether it's uh, an interview, whether it's a conversation with your boss, whether it's a meeting, uh, a sales presentation, all of those interactions take place between people who have different brains and consequently different experiences of the world, different preferences when it comes to communicating, problem solving, uh, and so on. So to me, the best argument for neuroinclusion is, is that it's that people are an organization's most expensive asset. The, the tool that they're all bringing to work every day is their brain. If we don't try to recognize and optimize for the fact that everybody has a different one, um, then we are going to create places or, or maintain places where a good chunk of people feel uncomfortable, uh, excluded, misunderstood, uh, where people feel like they can't do their best work, they feel they can't be themselves, where we lose talent to places that are more inclusive, where we don't collaborate to our best. Uh, we miss out on talent when we hire, um, and we don't enjoy the full innovative capacity of this kind of diversity of thought um, unleashed. So so to me, you, you know, that's that's the problem. I think it's a really strong problem that should be any leader's focus if you look at what leaders care about these days it's again how do we find talent how do we keep them around how do we innovate and so on so it all links uh, together i think what we do at optimize and what people would get in the book is start to give people uh, a better appreciation of this neurodiverse reality what does that mean for you as an individual what does that mean for you as an organization why are we talking about it now? And then just quickly trying to give you, whoever you are, a leader, a colleague, whether you're neurodivergent, neurotypical, uh, some strategies for working in a team, um, managing, recruiting, you know, whatever it is uh, that you can immediately uh, take away. I, you, you talk about what are some red flags for when somebody is being neuro-inclusive versus neuro-exclusive. I kind of want the Jeff Foxworthy of, you might be neuro-inclusive if, what are, what are some signs that someone is or is not being neuro-inclusive? Well, I think it's talking about it, actually, and that, that sounds a bit trite, but uh, if, if we're... Um, if, we, if we're starting from a position where, you know, most people aren't talking about this, uh, whether it's an organization or whether it's an individual, I think if we change that, that's the first step to true neuroinclusivity. So, for example, um, we've heard from our focus groups, uh, most times they uh, go to a careers website, they'll see an organization, to your point earlier, right? They'll see an organization talking about diversity. They won't see anything about welcoming different kinds of thinkers. So they immediately think that, you know, does this place really understand, really want people like me? So by by changing that, by, by talking about it in the recruitment process, by leaders talking about neurodiversity and saying, look, we're not experts, but we get that this is important. We get we have a neurodiverse workforce. This is a journey we want to go on. We want you to be part of this, but it's something we're really committed to. I think that's fantastic. 
and then at an individual level as well. And let's take an example, for example, you know, a manager or a colleague, you know, this manager or colleague, whoever they are, uh, has their own thinking style, right? Whether or not they're neurodivergent, whether or not they've had a diagnosis, whether or not they want to share their identity. Um, but that's something that they can surface with others. And so they could say, you know, your manager, for example, rather than giving everybody in their team instructions in the same way, could say, look, the way I like to communicate is via instant message or in person. I know that's probably not how you all like to communicate and actually understand with each direct report, you know, how do they like to receive instructions? You, you can have these conversations. That is a conversation about neurodiversity. It doesn't need to be a conversation about autism or a conversation about dyslexia. It's a conversation about the fact that we all think differently. Same thing with how do we want to organize our work? How do we want to come together and do a strategy meeting? You know, anybody can lead those conversations by highlighting their preferences, but being open to the fact that everybody else has theirs as well. And you feel that it's not only something that companies should do, it's to their detriment if they don't. Yes, hugely. I think this is one of the misconceptions we uh, face, which is that I think organizations, I call it the, the, the neutral starting point fallacy. I think organizations look at wherever they are. So here we are in April 2023. I think they think, OK, that's sort of zero. And, you know, we want to get better. We don't want to get worse. I think, in fact, if you look at the experiences of neurodivergent people in the workforce and the prevalence of neurodivergence, then clearly most organizations are suboptimal places to work. Uh, most organizations are doing a poor job of attracting uh, and retaining talent that thinks in different ways. So we really try to uh, highlight that fact and make organizations see this not just as important, but as urgent as well. And I'd like to get one last question into the book. If there was one takeaway from your book that readers could take, what would the takeaway be? Well, I, I, I'm afraid it's going to be a bit repetitive, but I do think it's worth laboring the point. I think it's it's the sort of, if I can kind of fuse the two, I think it's the reality of neurodiversity within, again, any organization, any team, um, any candidate pool, whatever it is, on the one hand, and then the action to start recognizing that and to start paying attention to that um, in your daily work. I think if, if that's something that we all start to do, good things happen. Yeah. Amen to that. So the book is available now. It's called A Hidden Force. And it's a, a, there's a subtitle, too, that's a little bit longer. What's the subtitle? Unlocking the Potential of Neurodiversity at Work. There we go. And it's available in all major booksellers today. So people can, can get that um, and enjoy that. And we think it's really important that what you're doing, and we're so glad that you stopped in to talk with us about it. Thank you so much for having me. And where, if people want to find Optimize, where, what's your website? Yeah, we're optimize.com. So that's U-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E.com. Um, feel free to reach out to us uh, there and we'd love to hear from you. And enjoy that eight-month-old baby. Thank you very much. With, with his American accent. I'm, <laughs> Not sure, yet. I'm sure you can influence him to have, a, have the lovely accent that you have. Uh, <laughs> all right, you take Thank care. You. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Uh, okay, guys, we are out of time, but I want to share with you that um, over the next couple of days, we're going to start re-airing some of the hours that you may have missed from the, the big Autism Network podcast-a-thon. Uh, and then what we are going to be uh, interspersing them with live shows. So you're going to have to tune in to see all the surprises at some point. I think we'll make a calendar, but we don't have one for you right now. But there's going to be good stuff coming your way. So I believe tomorrow we are going to see one of the stories from the spectrum because we had five different hours of stories from the spectrum that were aired during the podcast of them. Two of them were hosted by Dr. Kerry Magro, and he gave 
his top 15 tips for things that you need to know about autism. And two of them were hosted by Amy Gravino. Amy is an autistic sexuality coach and a, a relationship coach, an advocate, an autism sexuality advocate and relationship coach. I knew I'd get it right eventually. And uh, one of the hours she was with Dr. Peter Gerhardt and they blew the roof off of that. I mean, um, and then the fifth hour of stories from the spectrum during the podcastathon was hosted by Tom Arnold along with his co-host, his girlfriend, uh, Rosetta Walker, who's the queen of inspiration. So one of those, we don't, I'm not going to tell you which one, one of those is going to air tomorrow. And then on Friday, I believe you're going to get to watch the hour that I did in the middle of the afternoon, the second day with uh, Rachel Bird for Let's Talk All the Things with Rachel Bird. And we laughed. Uh, so you'll have to check that out. All right. Uh, but until tomorrow, uh, until we see you again, I want to send a hug to all your kiddos and one to you as well. Bye-bye for now. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.